bar. From a performance and an effort standpoint, no disappointment whatsoever. Great number seven knows like we did last year. This is Pool Time on Impact Sports Radio, your source for goals, high dives, and butterflies. And now your host, Max King. Another Friday edition of Pool Time here for Impact Sports Radio, MSU Student Radio, 88.9 FM, WDBM. My name is Max King, your host as always. Hope you all had a great holiday. Thanks for listening. I know a lot of people in the mid-Michigan area, especially the Lansing area, are still without power. It's very icy out there and snowy and cold still, so... If you're without power and somehow to manage to listen to pool time still, I appreciate it. And uh, maybe maybe your only source of entertainment for the day. Um, and for that, I apologize that that's, that's all you have to look forward to. A little bit of a different episode today. Um, as promised from last week's episode, we're doing a best of pool time 2013 for this episode. Uh, So that's going to be interviews and takes or just audio blurbs um, from the Michigan State Swimming Beat. So we're going to do that for our last episode of 2013. So there's been 10 episodes so far of Pool Time. This is number 11. So we're going to go back and thus look at the top 10 moments of Pool Time because the fans have voted. Okay, millions of votes have been submitted. And these are your best. These are what have been chosen. So we're going to go in order from 10 to 1, with 1 being the best moment of pool time in 2013. So we have a lot to get to today, lots of interviews to pull back up from the archives. So let's get into it. Our number 10 episode from episode 5 was our first in-studio water polo guest, Ian Wendrow, who's a second-year player on the Michigan State men's water polo team, came in studio and talked about the season after a tough Big Ten championship loss to Indiana University. Ian Wendro joining us here on Pool Time. The team had a very successful season, 9-2, and 7-1 overall in the Big Ten. Uh, you're ranked as high as fourth in the nation in the CWA polls, and then you ended up staying in that for the rest of the season, the, the top 20, uh, fluctuating between uh, some different rankings. But the season did end maybe a little sooner than the team would have liked. The loss in the Big Ten championship game, which, as I talked about in a, a previous episode, it's whoever just wins that thing goes to the Nationals. There's no automatic bids or things like that. So, And you lost to uh, University of Indiana in that game. So talk about uh, the season as a, gen- as a whole. How did it go? What were some ups? What were some downs? You know, on the whole, this was just a really good season. It just, as a team, we all just clicked. We got a bunch of, you know, we didn't get as many people as we liked, but the freshmen or new players we did get were, you know, they were good players or they were just really nice guys. So we matched as a team. We had a really good coach. And, you know, it was, 
the really unfortunate thing about that Big Ten is that it was just anybody's game. We had worked hard for it, and I don't want to put down Indiana. They worked hard for it, and congratulations to them. But it was one of those things where it's like this this felt like our year, especially in consideration of last year. We ended up fourth at Big Tens. This was like the year we could have really taken it. So, you know, on the whole, though, I'm really proud of what everyone's done. Um, I'm proud of how I've improved and how everyone else in the B team with me has improved. And uh, at this point, honestly, it's just one of those things where you look forward and say, all right, we got second place. It's not good enough. We can definitely get first. Let's work for it next year. So first thing we all said as soon as we got done with that game was, guys, this, you know, next season starts today. And we've, uh, you know, they've been doing, um, uh, you know, meet up and uh, pick up games of water polo at IMS, stuff like that. And just I've uh, been starting to go back to uh, working out and stuff like that. So, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was a good season. Not the way we wanted it to end, but I'm certainly not upset with how we ended. We definitely proved to the Big Tens and clearly Nationals that, you know, we're Michigan State. We're a team we reckon with. And going to that Indiana game now, now you played them previously in the regular season, beat them by a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, they came back in the Big Ten Championship and did the opposite to you. So talk about that championship game. Uh, just kind of break it down for us. What, what kind of game was that? Again, it was anybody's game. We were up by one point, down, we tied it up. It was just a back-and-forth thing. It really just came down to a point where we didn't really have to sub in much of the starting line. It was that intense of a game. Um, and, and you know what? Uh, it's just sometimes Indiana took some risks that paid off for them. Uh, we couldn't set up occasionally. So And just at the end of the day, they managed to get just that one goal in overtime that pushed them over the edge. And... Uh, Again, you know, it could have been we could have tied it up at the last second. Who knows? We could have maybe gone to win it, but it's just one of those things where, you know, the cards didn't play out. You had a new head coach this year, Mike Scarcelli. He's mm-hmm. the women's coach last year, so he does have some experience, but this was his first experience with the men's this season. Talk about uh, how he did as his first season as the men's head coach. Uh, I don't mean to put down our coach from last year, but definitely it was a lot better. He He's a great understanding of the game. He's an All-American player, so he knows how to play, he was going to think like a water polo player and such. And I just say he was tough but fair. He would give us hard sets, but we, we could understand what we were going for. It wasn't something random like, uh, all right, 500 butterfly, go. You know, if he did a butterfly set, it was because it was like a tough thing to do. Either it was we weren't, you know, putting enough effort in or it was just a way to get us, you know, more uh, fit. He brought in books and water polo that we could borrow anytime and look into and stuff. I'd ask him occasionally, hey, you know, what should I look at for uh, – you know, to pick up on stuff like how to play, blah, blah, blah. And he'd say, oh, look up um, American Olympic team, whatever, or this year, and so on and so forth. So, you know, he just, um, he took the time to understand the strengths of each player. In the beginning of the season, he had us all write down, uh, you know, our goals, what our, you know, expectations are for the season amongst ourselves uh, and such. And, you know, he worked with that. And so, uh, for the upper players, he'd work on plays with them. He'd analyze you know, what their strengths are, who's a good shooter, who's a good passer, and so forth. And he would call plays on that, or he'd have them work on it. And for people like me, he would just you know say, okay, you know, here's how you can work on uh, basic ball handling or how to work on catching and stuff. And he was a coach that you know he would go over fundamentals if necessary because he recognized that that's that's the, like, one of the most important things at the end of the day. Coming in at number nine is a record breaker. That is Summer Strickler. From episode nine, not too long ago, Summer Strickler, senior swimmer for Michigan State University, she became the new varsity record holder at Winter Nationals just a couple weeks ago. So I sat down with her on the last week of the semester, and she talked about the feeling of being the fastest 100-yard freestyler in Michigan State history. 
Um, honestly, when I looked up at the board and saw it, I kind of started laughing because, I mean, I was relieved that I finally got it, but I, I was just like, what are the odds that I get it right on the dot after trying like 10 times to get it? But overall, very excited. How long has that record been on your mind? Um, honestly, since I was since I was in high school because when I came here like to watch my brother swim when he was on the team I always would look up at the board and I kind of at that point I was like I was a little far away from it but I was like you know one day maybe that's something I can do so but definitely more so in the past year since uh, nationals last year when I just missed it out there. How much of a relief is it for you now to get that off your back and know if it was kind of a monkey on your back for a while or what? Um, it's a relief, but at the same time, um, I still have my goals set a little higher for the season. So it does, I, I kind of more or less was just kind of waiting for it to come. But like my, my biggest goal on the season is to make the NCAA B cut. So got to still kind of have that going for me. Now, just kind of explain to me what training went into that. Um, did you rest for Northwestern and then rest again for this, or did you just rest for Northwestern and go back into the short course? Um, I rested for Northwestern, and then I, I tried to stay swimming when I was home for Thanksgiving. I swam, like, over Thanksgiving everything with my dad at my high school. Um, but it was kind of a little sporadic, so I guess I would say that I – mainly was probably rested almost the whole way through uh, for the full uh, two weeks or whatever it was. So I was pretty rested. And lastly, going into the second semester now is, you know, you got a big Big Ten schedule going up. Um, what's your main focus on for the second semester aside from, you know, doing well at Big Tens? Um, I think that, like, one of my biggest focuses is to end the season with a winning dual meet record. It's been a, a long time, I think, really, since that's happened here. And I just think that'd be really, really cool to do, especially like coming out of my senior year. And right now we're three and three on the dual meet. So it's basically starting over a clean slate going into the second semester. At number eight is a fellow teammate of Summer Strickler. That would be Jill Stoneberg. And coming in at number eight, again, episode eight, number eight, is Jill Stoneberg. She's a sophomore swimmer for Michigan State University. She talked about the great story of making the team this year after being cut from the team the previous year after the first semester. And again, she trained at Open Swim at Michigan State through the rest of the year and then came back this year as a sophomore and made her cut for the second semester. So here's Jill Stoneberg, number eight moment of pool time. I mean, I was a little nervous, especially at the meet where I had to make my cut, um, that I wasn't going to make it just because of all I had been through last year. But I just kind of, you know, got my head up and was just ready to race, and I knew I could do it. So I just went in with that kind of attitude. You know, I was a little upset at first. Like I said, I came in here thinking I was going to be able to train with the team, um, and then you know, it kind of happened, and at first I was, you know, upset, and I didn't know if I wanted to continue to swim, so, like, I kind of took a week to think about it, and then I ended up deciding that it was something I wasn't ready to get rid of in my life, because I've been swimming for so long, so I decided that I would come in and give it a one more try. Did you talk to anyone specifically about 
how to get through this? Was there someone there that you kept talking through during that time? Um, I was always in touch with the coaches. They were very supportive of my decision to keep training. And um, anytime, like, I was a little frustrated, I would just talk to them, and they would kind of help me through it. Um, and then also my family was very supportive of me. Um, they, most of my siblings swam as well in college, so, like, they kind of knew what I was going through. So they kind of gave me a little push every now and then when I just said I didn't want to go, but just call them up and they would uh, tell me that I needed to. So, uh, On a more happier note, this year, when you did make that cut, take me through what you were feeling then. When I made the cut, I was really excited. Um, like I said, before the race, uh, I was really nervous. Um, you can ask any of my teammates. I was uh, <laughs> struggling a little bit like as the meet started, kind of in a panic, and then they just kind of helped me get up and get excited and told me some jokes and made me laugh and kind of loosen up. And then I went in and got my cut, and um, it was just really exciting to you know look up at the scoreboard and see the time. And um, it was, you know, really exciting. And then the bad part was I woke up the next morning at 5 a.m. and go, why did I do this? So there's pros and cons, but overall I'm really excited that I was able to make that cut. I was talking to Matt, I believe it was last week, um, about cuts and when people don't make them, what do you say? And he said that he's just going to kind of use you as a template now and your story. How does that make you feel? Um, I don't know. It kind of seems a little weird to me, but at the same time, I guess it's kind of an honor just to be able to do what I did. I mean, I've talked to a lot of, you know, ex-swimmers, and they told me that they wouldn't have been able to, you know, go a whole year on my own training. And coming in at number seven now is not from a particular episode of Pool Time, but it was an interview I did earlier in the preseason during the end of the summer with Matt Giannotis, Brian Williams, and Rebecca Berman, two swimmers on the Michigan State team, about Brody Newcomb, who is a six-year-old boy that the swim team adopted for the season, and he's been going through stints of cancer his whole life since he was one year old. And so the three of them sat down with me and talked about what it meant for them, for Brody, to be part of the team. You know, this year we're going to actually adopt a six-year-old boy who has uh, cancer and who has had cancer since he was one year old. Uh, that's a new thing for our team. We're really looking forward to that. In fact, they're going to be at the meet next Friday. Uh, uh, we go through the whole ceremony of him being part of our, our team at that point. I think it's going to have a really strong impact on um, not only the team but the kid itself, uh, just because coming together as a you know a whole, a whole team, you know, not just guys team or just a girls team, but the whole team in general, uh, really kind of like bonds us as one and you know we're all here to help out this kid and have you know bring him you know something extra and you know have him enjoy his time with us so um by being able to do that I think that it you know sheds a light on us and kind of like you know makes us appreciate what we have and also um definitely you know just brings a, a good name to uh, the swim team and something that we want to have you know we don't want you know People be like, oh, you know, just athletes, you know, they get everything that, you know, anything they want. You know, we want to let people know, like, we're here to help out the community and we, you know, like to do things that benefit others. Basically what we're going to do is kind of like work with him and be his support team. Um, and he, I think in a way he's going to help us almost like look at 
life different. I mean, I don't know. I'm really excited for this. I haven't, like I said, met this kid yet. And um, I'm an education major, so I really like kids. So I'm really excited, and I'm hoping th this uh, little boy will have some type of change on my life. I mean, I know the football team works with Paige, and it's changed a lot of them. Like, she's changed a lot of them and made them view life and appreciate everything we have a lot more. And coming in at number six, not only he was he our first water polo guest ever, but he was our first guest ever on pool time. That's right, all the way from episode one, our number six moment of the year is Josh Jackson, who is a captain of the Michigan State water polo team. He talked about the upcoming water polo season, and it was significant just because he was the first person to agree to come on the show and call in, which obviously is a big first step for where it is now. So number six moment from episode one, Josh Jackson, our first ever guest, talked about the upcoming water polo season. Last year we finished fourth in the Big Ten. Mm -hmm. um, we lost to Indiana in the semis of the Big Ten tournament, and then the, the consolation game we didn't really have much motivation for. Um, and I think last year that was because we had a pretty young team. Most of the starters were, were underclassmen. Um, so this year we have a new coach, and a lot of the players we had from last year are coming back. And I think, I think we have a chance to win. All right, so that rounds up their first five moments, 10 through 6. Okay, again, number 10, Ian Wendrow. Number 9, Summer Strickler breaking the 100 record. Number eight, Jill Stoneberg. Number seven, Matt Giannotis, Brian Williams, and Rebecca Berman on Brody Newcomb. And number six, first guest ever, Josh Jackson. So getting into the top five now is Matt Giannotis. Another stint of his. You'll hear uh, from him one more time before it's all said and done. And his coaching career from episode three. Now, this was the first interview that Matt ever did with Pool Time. As you now know, he's kind of like a weekly guest on the show but this was the first time that he came in and talked to me. And during that interview, he talked about his unusual coaching career path. Let's talk about your coaching career now for a little bit. You said that you kind of got into coaching as an accident. Talk about the unorthodox way you got into where you are now. Yeah, I started coaching because I needed to pay my bills for graduate school. And um, that's how I started. I, I started with like a club age group program back in Buffalo, New York. I was in grad school at the University of Buffalo, my hometown, and um, I was in a PhD program in history. And really, the plan was, uh, if you were to go back in a time machine and ask 21-year-old me what I was going to do, uh, it was I was going to get my PhD in history and get a job and teach history till I was 109 years old, you know. Um, one thing led to another, and, and uh, really, the club team that I was on had a lot of success, and that really kind of fed the pig, if you will, where I started thinking, hey, maybe I could do this for real, swimming-wise, and then the history thing got dropped. Um, so I went back to my alma mater, where St. Bonaventure University was a volunteer coach there, and then really caught a break, and I, I mean really non-traditional in the way in, ter in terms of how you break into college coaching. I caught a break, and, and Rich Bader hired me in 97, and I haven't looked back since. I really haven't had to leave. You know, you don't spend uh, – 
especially a school that isn't your alma mater, you don't necessarily spend a long time. I've been here, this is, I'm starting my 17th year overall here at Michigan State, and I've been really, really fortunate to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, it was really, I, I was never, uh, hey, I'm going to coach collegiately and I'm going to, I thought I'd be on a college campus, but I thought I'd be on the other side of the fence um, in academia, not necessarily in athletics. 17 years now, what are some of the highlights that you remember in those 17 years here at Michigan State? I mean, uh, I'll tell you the highlight for me is every year at homecoming, uh, the alumni meet becomes more and more impactful for me because so many kids come back. Well, they're not kids anymore, but so many people come back that I have had a direct effect or influence or whatever you, I've had a direct relationship with. You know, when I first got here that, you know, that's one of the unique things in our program is we have uh, alumni meet that we've run, I, I want to say now, 58 consecutive years. And it's one of the, outside of the football game, it's the longest running consecutive event on homecoming, um, which is cool. And so when I first got here, uh, it was important to everyone, but it wasn't really all that important to me because I had really no connection to it. Now, when I look forward to that day more than any other, because I don't, I don't get to see, you know, you see somebody every single day of their life for four and a half or three and a half years, and then they're gone. And then you see them once a year. So that is probably, to me, that's the biggest highlight. Um, in terms of highlights athletically, uh, there's a number of, you know, whenever you go to the NC2As or whenever you get a chance to take a kid to compete at nationals or something like that, that's kind of a big deal too. Um, but to me, it, it's all kind of woven together, you know, we're not, uh, one of the programs in this department, we're not really one of the ones that chase after banners per se, but, um, so, you know, the relationship that we establish with our kids are really, that's really kind of the most important thing we have as a staff and, and as a program. And it's just great to me, it's, it's great to see how successful some of these kids have become. At number four, best of 2013 is again a back-to-back -back dose of Matt Giannotis. This was his take on Michael Phelps back in episode seven. He had a great take on the news of Michael Phelps possibly returning to swimming and what he would do if he was Bob Bowman, Michael Phelps's coach. I guess the easiest way to answer that is do you think any basketball fans would be disappointed if Michael Jordan came back? And I, you know, I think it's obviously great for the sport. I, as a coach of his, the biggest thing is, and of course, he's not going to come back in order to, to fail. He's coming back to succeed. And uh, in in the year that he's been gone, man, people have really started moving along. I mean, they're they're not Michael Phelps's, but there's a lot of kids who in this country right now who are 18, 19, 20 years old who are Phelps-esque, you know. Uh, but if he's on the pool deck, for me, I think it's great because of the, just the name recognition thing. And we're going back to Omaha in 2016 for the trials. Nobody draws like Phelps does. Um, and, you know, like I said, I mean, I don't think any fan of the NBA was crying that Michael Jordan decided to come back. And, uh, and he, that's exactly in our sport. I mean, he's Michael Jordan, Babe Ruth, Wayne Gretzky rolled up into one. Everybody knows who he is. He's a champion. He's fantastic, you know. And uh, I think it's great if he comes back. I think it's great for the sport. And in your opinion, I mean, he is 31, which in the swimming world is ancient. And what we've seen people come back and do, I mean, you know, Derek Torres is obviously an extreme example. But even guys like Jason Lezak, they've competed well in their 30s. Um, and, I mean, what kind of, what more training do you have to do? How much harder do you think you have to work at that age? Well, I don't know if he's going to have to work harder. I think he's going to have to uh, work a heck of a lot smarter, and he's going to have to reduce his program down somewhat, the, the number of events that he's doing and then the length of the events as well. Now, you know, you know, he's a champion, and he knows how to win. 
which is the first step. Um, uh, and you, that part of stuff, you know, you're born with that. You just, you know, that's kind of stuff. It's tough to coach something like that, but he, he knows how to win. I, I think the biggest thing for him is, you know, from an over, you don't have to be that fit when you're 31 like you do when you're 21 because you're smart and you're smarter. Uh, and he's got a lot of experience, which helps too. Um, but the only thing I'd say is, is there's a lot of kids who would not be phased. In other words, the intimidation thing about Phelps coming back, I just don't buy the fact that, that kids would be that phased by it. Uh, which would probably be a mistake on their part because, but, you know, I, I don't know how he's going to do it, even if he is coming. I mean, it's a lot of speculation. You don't know even if he's really coming back, but I, 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 I'd just be curious to see what events he would he would put into his program because there are some events that he dominated at an international level for so many years in a row that I just don't think he can do anymore. Number one, because he's older, and number two, because the international competition has really caught up to him. I mean, the last Olympics, in his best event, the 200-meter butterfly, he lost that event. So... You know, and that kid is, is going to be four years older in a good way, the kid from Laclo from uh, South Africa. So, yeah, man, I mean, I, he's going to have to be smart with the events that he picks and how he trains for him for sure. And lastly, if you were Michael Phelps's coach and you had one event for him to swim in the Olympics, which one? Well, first of all, if I was Michael Phelps's coach, I'd be a lot more rich than I am right now. But, but uh, I'd say the 100 butterfly. 100 butterfly and then relays. I, I would I would I would gear towards the 100 butterfly and then all the relays 400 free relay 400 medley relay and 800 freestyle relay because he can probably get in a pretty good with the four other guys in the U.S. he can definitely put together a good 200 freestyle because you only really have to swim one of them but those would be the ones I'd go for. And our third best moment from 2013 is on that same topic Michael Phelps. This is the Michael Phelps take from episode seven and it was for me personally the best take that I felt that I had just because it was it was a very interesting topic to talk about because there's really good arguments either way for should he come back, should he just stay retired, why? And so it was fun not only researching it and, and looking at what other people had to say and, and some of the, the statistics that backed up both arguments, but it was just it was just a fun, relaxed take that I had during in the studio, and it was just fun to talk about because I know I definitely there was people that were disagreeing with what I was saying, which is good. You don't want everyone to agree with you all the time, and so this was just a really fun, interesting topic to talk about, and it's exciting because again, why wouldn't you want him to come back? But then again, there's the argument that, well, maybe he should just stay. So this is the third best moment. This is the Michael Phelps take from episode seven. Michael Phelps, yes. The flying fish, the Baltimore rocket, the goat himself has submitted, according to the anti-doping agency in the United States, he has submitted his drug tests, which is the first step in competing again as a swimmer. So, what does this mean? Well, very interesting article that Yahoo.com's Pat Forty wrote about a possible return for Michael Phelps. You can read the article yourself on Yahoo.com. He made some really interesting points because if you look at what is said in that article, okay, Phelps didn't comment on the article. He wasn't available for comment. Bob Bowman was. He talked to Pat Forty. He said there's no sign of a comeback, but he believes that Michael Phelps can compete at whatever level that he chooses to. Okay, so where do we do we do we look into that too much? Is he just coming back just so he can maybe compete in a few meets here and there? 
We don't know. Phelps has returned to swimming again. He's gotten back in the pool for what he claims are fitness reasons. He's doing it to stay fit. I don't buy it. I don't buy that for one second. If you still got it, and I believe Michael Phelps still has it, why would you waste those talents, even though they're on your talents are on the tail end and they're kind of you're running out of gas, you still have talent and you still have probably some of the best talent in the entire planet. Why would you waste your talents that you have left just to stay fit? You can kill two birds with one stone, Mike. Stay fit and train for the Olympics and train for worlds and train for other meets. Kill two birds, Mike. I loved it, though, in that article. I loved what one of Phelps' guys said about him. Quote, if he can still play, why tell Mozart to stop being Mozart? End quote. Yes, that is what I'm talking about. That's exa- I agree 100%. If you still got it, use it. If you still have some of the best talent on the planet, use it while you can. Because there's going to be a time where you're not going to have it and you're going to wish that you did. It happens with every great athlete. Look at Brett Favre, the old gunslinger, the silver fox. Look what happened to him. He had that one good year in Minnesota, but then it got, it got weird. It got sad almost after that. Michael Jordan, he had to make a comeback with the Washington Wizards. Didn't really amount to anything, but he made the comeback. If you still have the best talent in the world at any capacity, it's not going to be what he had in 2008. He's not going to be able to rack off and win every single race like he did. But he could still, he can still win and be a champion in other capacities. So people are saying, why would he do this? It's going to ruin this legacy. It's going to ruin this whole concept of him running off into the sunset after London. No, I disagree. I think if you still have what it takes to win gold medals, then do it. And that's what he's going for. He's going for a gold medal if he comes back. Okay, we don't know if he comes back or what capacity he's going to come back. He he may not compete in Olympics. He may want to just compete in a couple of of events and keep that competitive drive going, feed that competitive drive he has. But watching Michael Phelps and just thinking the and knowing the kind of guy he is on in the pool, it's hard to believe that he he'd be coming back for a, a a meet in Baltimore. Okay, it's hard to think that he'd be coming back to swim in a dual meet. In California. It's hard to think that he would come back to swim the duel in the pool against Australia. If he's coming back, you got to come back all the way. You got to get to the Olympics. Make that Olympic cut. They're in Omaha this year, if I'm not mistaken. Olympic cuts. They're in, they're coming back to Omaha, I believe, for, for 2016, for Rio. You got you to gotta come back all the way. Michael Jordan didn't come back so he could play in the D-League. He came back to be a starting player in the NBA. And that's what he did. So I don't buy that Mike's coming back just to stay fit. If he's coming back at all, he's just going to come and swim a couple meets here and there. No. If Michael Phelps is coming back, he is coming back all the way. He 
is going to swim in the 2016 Olympics if he comes back. And again, we don't know what capacity, okay? We can speculate all we want. But if he chooses the right event and the right amount of events, why not add a couple more golds? Why not? He's got 22. Make it at even 25. Make it make it more. Who cares? If you still have what it takes to win a couple gold medals, then win some. Pad those stats. No one's ever gonna touch those medal, all those gold medals. Now make sure they're really never gonna touch that gold medal record. And again, he's not just competing for fun. If he's gonna come back and compete, he's coming back to win an Olympic gold medal. So it's a good question. Where do you swim him? If he comes back, if you're Bob Bowman, what events do you swim him in? And not even just one. If you could swim him as much as possible to what you think would be beneficial for that U.S. Olympic team, where do you swim him at? 100 fly? 100 free? Do you have him try to go the two fly? Something that internationally he dominated up until recently? He didn't, he didn't win it in 2012. Where do you put him? Where do you put him? I loved what Giannotis said. I asked him, what would it mean to the sport if Michael Phelps made a comeback? And he just said, were basketball fans excited when Michael Jordan came back? He's got it right. That's true. Also completely agree with him. He's not just Michael Jordan. He's Babe Ruth. He's Wayne Gretzky. He's everything wrapped into one. He's a stud. He's the GOAT. So what would you do? If you were Bob Bowman, where do you put Michael Phelps in an Olympic race? I kind of got to go with Giannotis here. Okay, I would go 100 fly and then the relays. That's what I would do. I don't know if I'd go 100 free. Because I think you have people... First of all, 100 free is not his best event. Okay, and obviously many events are very good events for Michael Phelps. But... I think you guys, you have guys like Nathan Adrian. They'll take care of the 100 for you. Okay, he did last year. Nathan Adrian wasn't even expected to win that whole thing. He wins Olympic gold. If you remember his reaction, that was a great reaction. I love those reactions. I love when people have the reactions in the Olympics like that, like they did with Nathan Adrian. Because nothing's worse than a guy or a girl who knows they're going to win and then they get Olympic gold, the highest honor in all of sports, in all of athletics. And they just have this dead look on their face. Like they weren't pleased with themselves. Come on now, show some emotion. Even Phelps did. Phelps shows some emotion. He knows he's going to win, but it still feels good to do it. I don't know how, some, some of those athletes, man, they're stone cold though. They don't care, they're all business. And I have a problem with that, but man... If you were awarded, think about this in your job. If you were awarded the world's top honor in your field of expertise, whatever it may be, what would you do? No one else would just say, eh, put it in the trophy box. No. I like when they show emotion. Anyway, I would put him 100 fly and 3 relays. I agree, I agree with Matt. He would give you a good relay. He'd do a good 400 free relay. I think he'd give you a good 100. 
probably the uh, probably the 800 too. I think he could put together a pretty good 200 in a in a relay. And then the medley, put him in the fly. Why not? Because at this point, if he comes back to the Olympics, he's got nothing to lose. I mean, think about it. People are talking about his legacy. His legacy is already set in stone. Nothing that he does is going to ruin that legacy. It's not. If he comes in the Olympics and he doesn't win any medals, no medals, guess what? He's still the most decorated Olympian of all time. That's worst case scenario. You still have 22 medals, 18 golds. And if he does better, if he gets medals, and especially gold medals, rack him up. Add him to the trophy case. Throw him in the box. I wonder where he keeps all those. How do, where do you keep 22 medals, specifically 18 golds? Probably the other four that aren't golds, the silver and bronzes. I, don't, I wonder if he even displays those at this point. You think he just uses them as coasters for guests? Hey, Mike, you got a coaster? I can't find one. Yeah, I just use my silver from 04. Yeah, take that bronze from Athens. I don't care about it. My dog actually plays with it. Wonder what he does. I'd like to know. But I agree. I agree with both Kathleen and what Matt said. He's not going to come back to his full Michael Phelps 2008 type of thing. He's not going to be swinging in that two fly. He's not going to be swimming that 400 IM. Because those are tough. I, I don't even know if he'd swim the 200 IM. Because, again, you have to have years and years of planning, two to three years planning to train for those events. But who knows? Who knows what he can do? If anyone can do it, it's him. He'd be 31 by the time Rio de Janeiro rolled around. 31 by the time the Olympics started in 2016. And we've seen U.S. swimmers not only compete, but win medals in events over the age of 30. We've seen it been done before, recently too. Look at Dara Torres. She got the silver in 2008. Of course, Dara Torres is an extreme example. Just because she did it doesn't mean anyone else can. In fact, just because she did it, I'd say no one else can. Because that's amazing. But Dara Torres, she did it. She won the silver medal in the 50 meter freestyle at age 41. At age 41, she was the second fastest woman in the 50-meter freestyle. She was almost the fastest. She almost won gold in that event. She lost by a one-hundredth of a second. One one-hundredth of a second. Literally the smallest margin you can lose by in swimming. So she got silver. Man, I was rooting for her too. I remember that race. I was rooting for her too. Hard. How great would that have been if she outtouched that girl who won? I remember who it was. That shows you how great of a story that was. The girl who won the gold, no one even knows her name. I don't remember it. I remember the person who got second. How great would that have been had she touched her out, though? Someone who was old enough to be her mother just smoked her. But she can say that about almost everyone else in the world except that one person. I'm twice your age and I just destroyed you. People might say, well, it's a 50, it's kind of hard to destroy them if you only beat them by a tenth or two tenths of a second, a couple other tenths of a second. No. In a 50-yard or meter freestyle, especially in the Olympics, in Olympic finals, if you beat someone by three tenths of a second, 
in the Olympic 50 final. That's a domination. That's dominating. Especially if you're Dara Torres. If you can beat someone who's 19 by three-tenths of a second in the Olympic finals, no. That's a domination. You smoked them. And that's what she did. Jason Lezak, he's another one. Forever hero status in the United States for Jason Lezak. He was 32 when he won his first individual medal, 2008. He got the bronze in the Hunter Freestyle. Yes, he did. Actually tied for bronze, which is funny. And of course, he is most famously known for that anchor on the 400 free relay in 08 that kept Phelps's hopes alive, as Dan Hicks called back in 2008. And all he did was swim the fastest split in human history, going 46 flat to anchor that 400 free relay and beat the French. 46.06, that's not a bad way to end. Not a bad way to end your Olympics. That's still mind-boggling to me. That's absolutely stunning to me. I can't fathom that. For those of you who are wondering, that's a 40.05 in short course yards, if that's how you go by times. 40 flat. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. I still watch that race on YouTube, and I don't know how he runs that race still. I don't know. I have no idea how he does it. In fact, I still get nervous watching that, and it's not even the fact that I don't know how he does it. I still don't know if he's going to do it. I still don't know if he's going to win that race when I watch it. And he didn't just win that race. Okay, Elaine Bernard, who was the anchor for that French team right next to him in that lane, you realize that he was, before that race, he was the current world record holder in the 100. Eamon Sullivan broke it in that first leg of that race, led off the 50 in a world record. Phelps didn't do a bad job either. He led off in the American record. Eamon Sullivan got it, though, and of course the ref of his team faded out, which was expected. But Elaine Bernard, literally minutes ago, before he got in, was the world record holder. And he had almost a whole body length on Jason Lezak. Probably about half a body length. At one point, though, it looked like about a body length. But Lezak, he was the veteran. He was the vet. He rode that wave. He rode the wave. And those last 50 meters, he's just disgusting. I've never seen someone swim that fast. To this day, that is the best swimming race I have ever seen or will ever see. You're not going to see a better swimming race than that anytime soon. And you're certainly not going to see someone drop a 46 flat at the end of a relay. Come on. Come on now, Jason. And I remember Rowdy Gaines. Rowdy and Dan Hicks are great. I love when they call it the Olympics for swimming. I love it. Rowdy Gaines was, was going wild, too. Remember, he goes, he didn't just break the fastest time in history. He blew away the fastest time in history. And he's right. Before Lezak jumped in that pool, the fastest split was a 46-7, I believe. 46-7, 46-6. Lezak comes in, dominates that. Six-tenths of a second, I'll take it. Again, that's a 40-flat short course yards. 
Anyway, back to Phelps. It can be done. It can be done. He will be a year younger than Lezak was at that time. And Lezak actually, he was in the 2012 Olympics too. He was he he swam in those preliminaries in the 400 free, set up for a, for a silver medal between Adrian Phelps, Lochte, and Cullen Jones. So, he competed when he was 36 still. Pretty impressive. So I'm going to throw that question back at you. What event do you put him in? Only event he can swim. Not minus relays. We'll, we'll just assume that you put him in for the relays. But, one individual event in the Olympic finals. What's it going to be? Comment on the page. Comment on the bottom of this post. Say what you want. I'd like to hear. Be curious to know, what would you have Michael Phelps do? Hunter fly? Hunter free? Do you put him at the 200 IM? Do you put him at the 2 fly? Even though it might be a little out of the question, do you do it? Do you just have him swim relays? Do you have him swim the relays? All right, we are down to the final two moments of 2013 for pool time. And I got to be honest, I had a hard time choosing between which one should be number one and which one should be number two. To me, these are the clear top two moments of the podcast, but I had a trouble determining which one should be which. Coming in at number two is the Andy Driska interview from episode eight. Now, for me, this was the best interview that I had on the show from start to finish. It was the best interview from start to finish. It was very educational, I thought. That's a part of what Impact Sports and Impact 89FM, that's one of their goals, is to be educational. And Andy's just an interesting guy. He's got a lot of experience, not only with swimming, as an athlete, coaching, just being you know, a teacher, a professor. Um, now he's with sports psychology. For those of you who don't remember, Andy Driska was the uh, doctoral student here at Michigan State University, studying sports psychology, and he actually does work with the Michigan State swim team in regards to being their sports psychologist. So to me, this was just the best interview from start to finish. It was a really relaxed interview, and he was a really easy guy to talk to, very interesting, had lots of good stories, lots of good things to say, and I thought this was the best interview from beginning to end. So here's Andy Driska back from Episode 8, the second best moment of pool time in 2013. And I'm going to play this entire interview because really, I think from start to finish, there really wasn't a dull moment in the interview. So we're going to listen to this whole thing from start to finish. We are joined right now in studio by Andy Driska. Andy Driska, like I said, does sports psychology work with the swim team. He's a doctoral student here in the kinesiology program. We'll talk about all that later, but first of all, Andy, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Let's get right into it. You're a current doctoral student here at Michigan State in kinesiology program. Your concentration is in sports psychology. Just a little bit of background on yourself. You know, you started out, you were a swimmer at Ithaca College. When you were at Ithaca, just tell us about what, what you concentrated at Ithaca, and then you went to Minnesota State. Just talk about that for a second. Yeah, sure. Um, I swam at Ithaca College a long time ago. I graduated in 2000. Um, didn't really have that much of an interest in sports psychology. Um, it's actually a biochemistry major, but uh, not a very good one. So um, I got out of school. Um, I coached high school swimming for about seven years until 2007, decided to go back. I wanted to get into college swimming, 
got a graduate assistant coach position at Minnesota State University. And um, at that point, I, um, I entered the master's program in sport and exercise psychology. And after a couple of years there, I decided I wanted to go on and do a Ph.D., yeah, I think I was a little bit tired of, of coaching, but um, just wanted to do something different. You know, I think wanted to get into the academic side of things. So that's what I'm training to do right now to eventually be a college professor. Obviously, you said you come from a swimming background. You were a co-captain for your varsity swimmer at Ithaca. Then you began coaching and you've coached skill levels all the way from five-year-olds to college athletes. So what made you want to get into coaching? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think for me, it was kind of a natural um, first step coming out of college. I found that um, I really enjoyed the time that I spent, especially as a captain, um, with my college team. And I just enjoyed working with teammates, just trying to help people get better. Um, I just enjoyed the process of improvement. And I think, you know, what I found to be pretty rewarding about coaching was that it was something that kind of required my full energy and attention, but it was the kind of thing where I could see the effects of my work day to day. So um, it wasn't a full-time job for me at the time when I first started out, but it was kind of like you can see kids getting better every day, and that was pretty rewarding, I think, when I was young, just to to do something that I felt like actually made a difference. (laughs) And now you also uh, spoke about the education part of it uh, early on. You also have taught at the high school level, and you're currently teaching courses at Michigan State. What are the similarities between teaching and coaching that you've found? When you do coaching well, there's a big teaching component to it. So if you come to the pool every day with the idea of a teacher, the idea that you need to work with each athlete as an independent student almost who's trying to get a little bit better at the sport every day, And you think of practice more as learning than training and sort of just going back and forth and and just trying to make yourself more fit. You're trying to learn a little bit every day. Um, I found that to be pretty useful in the pool. I also found when I was teaching that one of the things it's a little bit frustrating as a teacher is you really don't have the same type of um, relationship with students that you do with, say, athletes. I think athletes today are more willing to be pushed by coaches. And I also think that parents are a little more willing to let coaches really push athletes. I found that teachers didn't have that um, license to push students like coaches could push athletes. And I think to me that was a little bit frustrating because I recall um, as a student myself, had it not been for several teachers who really pushed and made me do some things that I didn't want to do or discipline me when, when I was, uh, uh, you know, kind of misbehaving because I was, I was kind of a, a bad kid in middle school. So, <laughs> but I, I'm really thankful for those teachers. And I know my parents gave them the license to do that. Andy Dreska is my guest. Andy, how tough of it of a transition is it from an athlete to a coach? It's a tough transition because as an athlete, you're really focused on yourself and you may be focused on your teammates and you kind of bring like one motivational style. It's just kind of the intensity. Like if you're a captain, you're just trying to get everyone to bring some intensity to practice, to meets. When you're a coach, um, 
you really can't just bring that intensity because, you know, the reality in swimming is that a lot of swimmers are just not you see football players and they're all intense and you see them in the tunnel and in, in the team room and they're getting, and you know what swimmers, some swimmers are like that, but most of them aren't. <laughs> so um, learning to take that step from simply trying to energize practice to actually running a good practice in terms of how do you motivate one athlete who's completely different than another athlete and swimmers, I mean, again, I, th- I think of football players as kind of being a little bit more similar in terms of, but of course they're all different. Um, but every athlete kind of has to respond differently. They respond differently to different types of motivational strategies. So as a coach, you really have to open your eyes to that. And I know it certainly took me, I'd say about two or three years to really learn that lesson that you have to differentiate your approaches um, you just have to be a lot more savvy as a coach. Now, which one is more nerve-wracking, coach or athlete? I think coaching. Um, I think in competition it can be. I think, I mean, people have different understandings of what nerve-wracking means. But I think of one of the, the hardest things, I call it emotional labor. Um, you, <laughs> you'll have one swimmer come back at a meet and say they don't have a great swim. Or two swimmers swim in the same heat, for instance, and one swimmer swims lights out, lifetime best. Another swimmer comes back, they don't perform well at all. So on one hand, at the same time, you have to be really excited and congratulatory for the swimmer who had lifetime bests. And then you have to turn right around and adopt a completely different mindset, kind of treat the other one with kid gloves and, and think about, okay, how am I going to approach this? and sort of debrief this situation so they can move on to their next race. And then you just have to do that for three hours a session. And so you go from, you know, it's kind of a roller coaster ride. So I found that to be a lot more stressful. Whereas when you swim, like, you get up for one race, you get ready for it, you know, it's really intense right before it, but it enables your body to perform. You swim your race, you warm down, and you're done. <laughs> you know, and then maybe an hour or two later you have another race. And as far as coaches go, whether it be a prominent coach on one of the national teams, the Olympic teams, or just someone that you work with or maybe uh, swim under, who's a coach in your past that you've really admired and looked up to? There's been several. um, And I think I've tried to learn a little bit of something from every person that I've worked with. When I was coaching a high school program back in Pennsylvania, one of the guys who was an assistant for our program, and he had actually been my assistant coach when I was a senior in high school, but we worked together um, from 2000 to 2007, a guy named Bud Reiner. And Bud was not really from a competitive swimming background, but he was a Navy SEAL, and he had done three tours in Vietnam. And he had a very good sense of how to handle pressure situations. Obviously, having been a Navy SEAL, you, you learn a few things about that. And I think I learned a lot from him in terms of, you know, how do you carry yourself as a coach around athletes at, say, a state championship meet? And I think that was, um, I don't think I would have ever learned how to do that had it not been for him. Um, certainly other guys I had coached with, um, a guy named Steve Doncheski, we coached um, summer league swimming for about seven years just learned a lot about structuring practices and working with athletes from him as well. So I think those two guys were kind of really important in my formative experience, kind of kept my feet on the ground, taught me a lot about what I know today. 
And in your opinion, Andy, why is swimming unlike any other sport? Yeah, great question. It looks easy. It is very difficult. The amount of hours that you have to put into the sport, it's a part-time job. And I think the way I always try to put it to people who don't quite note swimming is like, if you've played 18 holes of golf and you've walked it, imagine swimming that. That's a practice in two hours. And I think that kind of puts things into perspective in terms of just how far you swim. Then, of course, you're doing it at a very high intensity. And to do that, in some cases, twice a day, to do that almost in, say, if you take the, the student-athletes here at Michigan State, you know, you're doing that almost year-round with not much time off, that's a huge dedication. And I, I don't think a lot of people can handle that level of monotony. I think Eddie Reese, the coach at Texas, he's kind of quoted, I've heard, I guess I've heard him quoted as saying this. I'm not sure if he actually came up with a quote, but he'll say, athletes don't choose swimming, swimming chooses you. And I think it takes a pretty unique person to do it. Um, but those who, who've done it and enjoy it, I think they really, I mean, they know what I'm talking about, you know. So it's, I don't know. I think it's what makes it unique. It's just, it's not, it's not a very exciting sport unless you have been in it long enough to understand why it can be exciting or how, how it can pay off. Talking to Andy Driska, a doctoral student at Michigan State. Your concentration is in sports psychology, so let's talk about that now in your association with the Michigan State Swimming Program. You work with them in that sports psychology aspect. Talk about the work you do with them. Yeah, sure thing. Um, this year I'm actually uh, officially a, a volunteer assistant coach, and um, that enables me to spend a little bit more time with the team. Um, we uh, primarily, um, you know, people will hear the term sports psychology and they'll think immediately you hear the word psychology, you're thinking Sigmund Freud, and it's really not that at all. It's a lot of um, simply trying to make yourself more consistent, trying to bring your attention to some of the aspects of the sport that you might otherwise simply ignore in your training. Um, and if you ask people, you know, what the challenges of swimming are, oftentimes they'll bring up mental challenges. Um, I think one of the, the biggest challenges in the sport is simply when you're standing at the edge of the pool before a two-hour practice and you're looking at the practice and you're thinking, yeah, that's pretty difficult. Um, the challenge is simply making that decision to either go completely all out or just give 85% and do just enough not to get noticed by the coach. And I think that 85% is really, I think of that as being hard work. You know, going in, swimming as fast as you can, but that extra 15% is the little details that matter. So if you're going to do underwater dolphin kicks in your race, that means doing them in practice when you're tired and you don't feel like doing it. When, you know, you don't want to focus on, you know, dropping your elbow in freestyle and, and losing the power because you're just getting lazy and you're getting tired, you know, that's that 15%. And I think that's a challenge. I mean, you have to bring that constant attention to very routine, repetitive actions. So, in general, I think the focus of my work has been trying to get swimmers to focus on those things more, to be aware of what they need to do in order to be great. And one of your research interests is mental toughness, which is the basis for your first thesis that you did. 
at Minnesota State. In general, what does it mean for an athlete to be mentally tough? Yeah, that's a great question. And without going too far into the debates that are had about the term mental toughness, um, I think in general, I would categorize it as a mindset, um, a habitual way of thinking when it comes to uh, the sport of swimming. And I think it's simply, there's a few things that go into it. I think one is simply having a mindset that you're going to give your all every day at practice. I mean, as I said, the difference between 85% and 100%, um, it's not just effort, it's attention to detail. So that's part of it. I think having a certain level of trust in the coach and the program that you're doing, I think that's we're finding in current research that we're doing, that's a really big part. And that's something that evolves even in athletes' um, collegiate career. They're sort of learning how to work with a coach to transfer information back and forth. I think a big part of it is simply, I may have mentioned this a little bit before, but just simply having confidence in, one, the fact that your efforts are going to pay off at the end of the year. Um, swimming, one of the hardest things about it is that you generally tend to focus on one or two meets a year. You rest for a midseason meet and you rest for your championship meet at the end of the year. And it's kind of like putting all your eggs in one basket. And to have you know, faith that three to six months of training are going to pay off. That takes a lot of confidence. It's talk about like delayed gratification. It can be a very difficult thing. And oftentimes the pressure gets to be a little bit too much. And then there's just a lot of things that mentally tough swimmers do, but you know, whether that's, you know, pre-performance and post-performance routines, the things that they tell themselves in terms of their self-talk, just to keep themselves consistent, keep themselves optimistic. Um, They've developed these habits over, you know, over a lifetime in the sport. And um, so a lot of it is you could kind of think of it as, you know, what are the habitual ways of thinking and the habitual actions of, of mentally tough swimmers? Now, changing subjects a little bit, most people, when they think of sports psychologists, they don't think he or she is a good tweeter. But <laughs> you would say otherwise. How can a sports and performance psychologist implement Twitter in their benefit? Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good question because, you know, it gets to be a little tricky, I think. Um, within the field of sports psychology, there's a lot of different um, types of practitioners. So you may see someone like myself who's working with a team. They're almost sort of like a almost like a part-time coach. You're coming in, you're doing some things to like say, let's Let's reflect on our swims. Let's take a look. Like So, for instance, the other day, we were doing something we call performance profiling. Um, performance profiling is simply taking a look at eight or nine different aspects of, um, we would call them performance keys, and rating yourself from zero to ten on it, and then kind of setting a goal. So if you're at a four, but you need to be at a seven, you kind of set that as a goal. And that's kind of a good way of just breaking down your performance. But I'm sort of doing that with the whole team. If I'm doing that individually with an athlete um, and we're working one-on-one, there's a lot of people who would say, well, you shouldn't really disclose what you're doing with that person. That should be protected by confidentiality. And without, again, without getting into some of the debates that are being had in the field of sports psychology, there's, you know, there's a lot of people who would say, you don't say anything at all about who you work with. And there's a lot of people who come from more of a, say, of a sport background and who will say, look, if you're simply working with someone on performance enhancement, giving them a little shout-out via Twitter is, yeah, that's okay. 
you know, or if you're working with the team and you want to, you know, send a congratulations to them and everyone knows you're working with them. I, I mean, it's kind of a gray area right now, but I think it can be beneficial. I, I probably don't use it as well as some other uh, folks in the field. A lot of people will use it to sort of develop a following. So if, if they're sort of a full-time practitioner, they might send, you know, daily motivational quotes or, you know, links to, to articles, but they kind of use it a little bit more promotionally. I'm so focused right now on my own studies that I just, I've kind of fallen off in terms of using Twitter, but I, certainly a lot of people out there use it quite effectively. Speaking of your own studies, you're expected to finish your doctoral work in the spring. So talk about the work that you're doing to get that degree. My focus as a student has been, um, I focused a little bit more on coaching and coach education. And specifically, I've, I've gotten into the realm of online education um, just because it's, it's really taken off in the last, you know, probably in the last decade, it's gotten a lot bigger. So one of my focuses is, is using online methods to educate coaches. And in the United States, coaches are not uh, required to be educated. So if you go to Canada, for instance, to be a coach, you are required to go through a formal education program. Um, that's not the case in the United States. Most of coaches are, say, at the age group level are generally volunteers or part-time coaches. So the requirement for education is, it varies by sport, but in most cases, most coaches won't have any education. And that to me is pretty concerning because if you look at a lot of the issues that have occurred, um, you know, kids are getting burned out on sports. They're spending way too much time playing one sport. They're specializing. You're seeing like 14, 15-year-old kids getting overuse injuries. And a lot of that simply starts with coaches who do not have accurate knowledge about proper sort of acceptable ways of athlete development. I would actually put myself, when I was a coach before I went back to school, I would put myself in that same lot. I had a pretty good idea of physiology. I understood it, but I didn't necessarily knew you know, ideal trajectories for athlete development. To get back to where I'm studying right now, my focus is um, evaluating uh, coach edu education programs. So for a dissertation, um, that's what I'll be doing is taking a look at some, some online coach ed programs and, and looking at their effectiveness. Now, once you get that degree, Andy, where do you plan on going from there? What I'd like to do is land a faculty position. Um, which can be a little bit difficult sometimes. There's not as many as I would hope, but um, I like teaching. I like doing research, and I think I'm trying to land a position that's, um, that almost doesn't exist that would be a sort of perfect combination of teaching, research, and consulting and other types of outreach work. Typically, it's either all research or it's all teaching, and um, there's not much room for outreach and, and that type of scholarship, but that's certainly what I'd like to do. Lastly, a couple quick hits here. Your hardest and or least favorite swim set you've done? Hmm, least favorite. Wow. I like them all. Well, I shouldn't say I like them all. I like some more than others. But I don't think, and of course, you're taking me way back here. So like 1998, <laughs> 99, like that was a long time ago. So I think it wasn't so much certain sets, but I hated certain times of the year. So I hated getting in shape. Like, the first two weeks of practice, I just hated. Or sometimes, like, the first day of, like, swimming long course, I just hated because I felt like I was going nowhere because the pool is twice as long. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to answer that, though. What about favorite and least favorite strokes? I was 
primarily a freestyler, and um, I, I probably enjoyed the, the 500 the most. By the, by the time I finished college, I finally learned how to swim that race properly. So doing it well, I really enjoyed, yeah. And least favorite? Least favorite, I can never swim breaststroke, right? My knees just don't bend the right way. I don't know. <laughs> and fondest swimming memory? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I have several. I think um, as a swimmer, it was probably swimming with my college team, but we used to, for our captain's practices in Ithaca, we used to go gorge jumping. So there's a lot of waterfalls and gorges, and that was... I think it was probably some of the funnest like team bonding experiences that we had. Occasionally, like remember one time we took like water polo balls and we were playing water polo in like in the middle of like a like a gorge. It was pretty cool. <laughs> and then I think as a coach, um, I think my last year of coaching high school swimming uh, just had an incredible state meet, and it was one of those meets where you know I think a team won maybe three first place relay events and it was just like it was the perfect meet like those meets never happen and just to have everything go the way you want it um it was it was pretty nice it was my last one so it was um it was kind of nice to finish on that note and lastly favorite olympian to watch swimming wise that mm. is yeah it's a good question you know i think phelps would be the obvious answer i think um you know, it's it's easy to look at what he's done, but I think the constant evolution that he made from 2000 to 2012 was pretty impressive. And um, to stay in the sport at that level for that long, I think it's just unprecedented. And I think, you know, seven gold medals or eight gold medals in a games is not like what Spitz did in 1972. The, the level of competition has come way up. So I think, I mean... It's just hard to argue with um, with that, but yeah, I'd, I'd have to go with that. He is a doctoral student at Michigan State, concentrating in sports psychology, works with the MSU swim team. In that regard, former college swimmer and coach, also teaches courses here at MSU as well. Busy man, Andy Driska. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Max. All right, it is time for the long-awaited number one top moment of pool time in 2013. Now, this, to me, the reason I made this number one was I felt like this was the most entertaining interview of pool time. Andy Driska, number two, I thought was the best as a whole. Okay, and it was entertaining for me, but I also thought that the most entertaining, though, just the most engaging one to, to listen to as just a storyteller was this one. It gave great insight to the game of water polo and Michigan State water polo, particularly a time where this person talked about his nose being broken, was a personal favorite of mine. And if you are a pool time groupie or junkie, you will know that this made even made the intro to pool time that you hear every time now, the number one moment of 2013 in pool time, Chase Plank interviewing all the way back from episode two, which I find interesting because if you look at maybe the like the last three, you know, number four, number three, number two, they're all from later parts of the podcast. They're from, you know, episode seven, episode eight. And I don't know if you found this, but I've certainly found that the, the podcast certainly has gotten better pretty much every show and definitely over time compared to the first couple episodes, the podcast has definitely gotten better in all aspects, but 
This one, I think, has stood the test of time. Uh, just because, like I said, it was so entertaining. The Andy Driscoll one, it was the best one overall, and it was very informative and educational. But Chase Plank, I thought, was the most entertaining out of all of them. And especially, and, and between the two, I thought Chase Plank was was just a great interview. Um, and I've said it before. I've, I've played some of his clips back over, like I said, that... Um, the break number seven's nose like we did last year clip is definitely used that's something you should be familiar with by now so um that's that's what that one clip is in the intro is that that is chase so our number one episode let's get to it now chase plank former michigan state water polo player two-time all big 10 and two-time big 10 champion for michigan state university chase plank joins me chase thanks for making the time how are you I'm doing great, thanks. Chase, got a lot to get to with you today. In regards to your first water polo game at the collegiate level, do you remember your first polo game really well? What was that like? Yeah, man, it was insane. Yeah, we played Michigan. Um, it was at the Spartan Invite. My first game was against Michigan at the Spartan Invite. And uh, I played on the, I played on the B team the very first game and after the B team I played so well uh, Laszlo who was the coach at the time came up to me I was about ready to go to the locker room and change to cheer on the A team he goes Chase you're playing in the A game too you're, you're, you're not playing B anymore the rest of the season or ever so uh, my very first game was a B game but I played well enough to the point where the coach at the time told me I was never going to play a B game again and wanted me to be on the A team and I ended up playing probably about half of that game. Uh, even the A game, I played probably about half of it. Um, I think I probably scored like a goal or two. But at the, when I was a sophomore, we had guys on our team that just were machines. So in your first game as a college water polo player, you were playing on the B team. And for those of you who don't know, Michigan State, it's, it's a club sport, so it's split up between, you know, A, B, and C teams, D, you know, depending on how many teams they have. So you're on the B team, obviously, the second most talented group of guys. You get off, and they tell you immediately, all right, you're up starting on the A team. You're at the varsity, you could say. That must have been a great feeling for you. Absolutely. Not very many people, their first year on the team, and... Um... I mean, I didn't. I didn't play my freshman year at Michigan State. Uh, my scholarship that I received, they they wouldn't allow me to um, take the time off of my commitment towards the scholarship to go to practice every single night. So I didn't. I didn't have the privilege of winning a national championship my freshman year like some of my friends did. I, I still get a little upset about it every once in a while because I, I definitely could have made something work out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was. I mean, I got a right scholarship to Michigan State for being a golf caddy and at the time I was an 18 year old and I was like I'm not about to piss these people off that are paying for my college um so my my sophomore year it was when I started but it was it was definitely great being able to come in there and get like a force on the team like instantly you know what I mean Chase most people don't know about MSU water polo's success over the past decade and beyond so, talk about some of the success you had as a player. Um, being a Big Ten champion, um, although it's a club sport, you know, we, we compete nationally with um, teams from California, teams from Texas, teams from Florida. Um, 
being able to always be competitive with those teams as well and ranking in the top three teams of the nation, you know, it's it's always nice to be a part of a team like that. It's unfortunate that we were ne- never able to get first in the nation, but um, being able to beat Michigan every year um, was always was always enough to put a smile on our face, except for my last year. We lost to them. What teams were always competitive, always gave you a run for your money? I mean, Michigan was always tough to play against. Um, just because, you know, it's Michigan, you, uh, Michigan State rivalry. Um, another team was Lindenwood. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard about them. They're a team from Missouri. My junior year when we went to Nationals, I ended up getting my nose broken in our uh, second game at Nationals against Lindenwood. Um, I thought it was blatant. Um, a lot of my teammates thought it was on purpose and everything, too. Uh, I, if you were to see the video, I think you would think it's, it was on purpose. Um, the following year when we played them at the U of M uh, tournament, um, one of Lindenwood's players, we were playing them at U of M, uh, one of their players got ejected from the game for punching one of my teammates in the face. And when he got ejected from the game, his he went into the stands and he was in the stands yelling, break number seven's nose like we did last year. And for some reason, whenever we played Lindenwood, no matter what circumstance it was, I, I just, I played out of my mind. Um, they, we were playing them against that uh, at Miami, Ohio one year. Hey, that was my sophomore year. And I broke my thumb in the game before we played them against Michigan. I shot a backhand. I hit someone in the, in the face and I broke my thumb. I ended up playing the following game against Lindenwood. And we were down by, um, I think, six goals going into the halftime. And I sat out like the beginning of the second quarter all the way to like probably two minutes left in the second quarter. Um, and then I started the third quarter and something happened where every time I threw the ball towards the cage, it just went in. It was, it was crazy. I had a broken thumb and everything. And I think I ended up having probably seven goals against him that game. And every time we put the wood, uh, I just, I would, I would blow up. Yeah. I don't know what it was. I just would blow up. And that, that's why I think it was blatantly that they broke my nose at nationals. Um, because when we were playing that game at Nationals in the first quarter, I had two goals already. And I ended up getting my nose broken at the beginning of the second quarter. So, um, and they were, they were a dirty physical team. They were known for physicality. They had a lot of European players on their team, foreign, foreign players on their team. Um, and that's how they're taught to play when, they're, when, when they start out when they're young, you know. Speaking of injuries, what are some of the most severe injuries you had as a player? Broken thumb, broken nose, attack. Both have gotten hit in the eye with the hands and fingers a few times to the point where it's swelled up where I couldn't open my eyes. Um, I've been hit in the groin too many times. Um, but I would, say, I would say the major ones were my nose and my eyes and my thumb. What were some of the highlights of your career? Um, every single time we played Michigan and every single time we played Lindenwood. You know, I, they, I never, I'm not the type of player to sit here before the game while I'm warming up and 
watch the other team and wondering what they're going to do and wondering who's going to play, like who's going to play on their team. Because when I get in the pool, I know that I'm going to do better than them. You know what I mean? I, I could care less who's lining up across from the pool with me. It could be a six foot five, 280 pound dude. I'm just going to do whatever I can to beat him. You know, Chase Plank, former Michigan state water pole player is my guest. Chase, let's get into your coaching career. Now you've been coaching for the last few years now. Talk about what you've been doing as far as coaching and, and why did you want to get into coaching? Um, just being able to learn the different aspects of the game. You know, like I grew up playing water polo late in high school. You know, I didn't have the advantage that some of my friends did starting off when they were younger. Um, so when my coach in high school asked me if I wanted to help out coaching middle school and age group teams, I was like, yeah, I'll help out so I could, I, I could learn more. Um, and then I expanded uh, my view of water polo by coaching Michigan State's team. I've coached Okemos Middle School. Um, I've gone and I've done clinics with Laszlo. I've done clinics with Mike. I've done clinics with, uh, with Ron. Um, uh, and then I wanted to expand it even more, and, and I started wrestling uh, each aspect of the game is completely different. You see the game completely different. When you're a player, you're thinking about you and your teammates while you're in the pool. When you're a coach, you're thinking about your team while they're playing the game. But when you're a ref, you're not, you're just, you're observing what's going on and, and you're seeing the, the game happen from both sides uh, rather than just one, you know? So since you became an official, do you find that you have a better appreciation for water pool officials, not that you are one. Oh, better, better, I still hate refs, but man, do they get a bunch of crap every single game. Holy cow. They, they, that's why they get paid so well is because of the crap that they have to take from the coaches. Um, but the appreciation for them, you know, I, I do have more appreciation for them just because of the work that they actually put in. A lot of people, especially with a club sport, you know, not every team has a coach. When you're fortunate to have a coach, they actually do put a lot of work in. Um, but re- refer- refereeing is completely different. It's everyone hates you except for the person standing across from the pool from you. You know, the fans, the parents, the, the, both teams, both coaches. During the game, they they don't like you. So um, it, it's definitely a different view. But you can learn. Just by observe, like while you're refing, observing other teams, what they do right and what they do wrong, and that's how I ended up getting better is being able to coach other teams and um, and ref other teams, being able to see what they do, and I just based it off of what I've seen and try to get myself better that way. There you have it, Chase Plank racking it up at number one, and that is your top ten moments of 2013 for pool time long awaited i know a lot of you were stressing out to wait for this moment to come i'm assuming this is what you look forward to at the end of your week every week on friday what was your favorite moment though that's what i want to know do you agree with the top 10 we getting a little controversial now do you think that some deserve to be ranked higher or lower do you think that there's some that you remember that didn't even make the cut let me know comment on the bottom of the page i'd like to hear You don't have to comment using Facebook because I know you don't want anyone to see any of your friends to see that you comment on anything. 
and well, I guess nowadays it's your parents. You don't want your parents and your grandparents to see what you do in your spare time. Comment at the bottom of the page. You can comment just like a note. You can do a regular comment. You don't have to do it through Facebook and identify yourself with a photograph and all that jazz. So comment at the bottom of the page. Do you agree, disagree? Which one did you like? Or maybe why did you like a particular one in the top 10? I would definitely like to hear from you. I hope you had happy holidays and have a happy new year. Next episode, we will be talking about the duel in the pool because I know we talked about day one. And we haven't gotten to day two yet, and we definitely will because day two was a doozy of a day. And uh, hopefully some of you watched it on NBC on Sunday night. Um, But again, I know that was a time where a lot of you lost power in the mid-Michigan area, so maybe that wasn't very attainable for you. But we will talk about that next week. I know it will be kind of a late topic at that point, but it was just too good not to pass up. We'll definitely talk about what happened in day two of that meet. For Impact Sports, 88.9 FM, WDBM, Michigan State Student Radio, my name is Max King, your host. Have a great new year. Thanks for a great 2013, and I have hopefully a 2014 full time will be even better. Until next time, see ya.